Hello everyone and welcome to the MTG Novels Project. Today we are starting the novel Planeswalker. Planeswalker is the second novel in the Artifact series. However, if you've not yet listened to the first novel in the cycle, I recommend you check out Coach at the Card Bazaar as he's done an excellent edition of The Brothers in War, which is the first novel in the series. Links in the description. Full disclosure. I had a speech impediment earlier in life, which I've tried my best to overcome. I also apologize if you find my voice nasally or otherwise dislike it. I'm trying my best to provide you with the best content I'm able to provide. However, this being said, I'd love to hear constructive feedback, which corrects pronunciation issues, provides other realistic feedback to improve the project. A legal note. This is an unofficial audiobook with original content belonging to Wizards of the Coast. This content is covered under the 2017 Wizards of the Coast Fan Content Policy. Listener discretion is advised. Chapter 1. A Man Descended His journey began in the clouds, riding the winds in search of a place remembered but no longer known. He'd found a place before by following the aging glyphs an ancient folk had carved into land. Cliffs that had endured millennia of neglect and the cataclysmic finale of the Brothers' War five years ago. Much of Terrassier had vanished in the cataclysm, reduced to dust by the fratricidal hatred. That dust still swirled overhead. Everyone coughed and harvests were sparse, but the sunsets and sunrises were magnificent, luminous streaks of amber. Reaching across the sky, seeping escape from a ruined world. The brothers, in whose name the war had been fought, had been reduced to curses. By Urza's whim and Mishra's might, may you rot forever beneath the forests of sunken Argoth. Rumor said that Urza had caused a cataclysm when he used Latinam sorcery to fuel his finer, most destructive artifact. Others said that the cataclysm was Mishra's curse as he died with Urza's hand clasped around his throat. A few insisted that Urza had survived his crimes. Within a year of the cataclysm, all rumors had merged in an increasingly common curse. If I met Urza on the road, I'd cripple him with my own two hands. And he and his brother crippled us. Then I'd leave him for the rats and vultures as he left Mishra. Urza had survived. He'd heard the curse in its infinite variations. Nearly five years in self-chosen exile, the erstwhile Lord Protector of the Realm had spent another year walking among the folks of blasted Terissier, the dregs of Yotia, the survivors of Argive, the tattered, famished, and lame disheartened. No one had recognized him. Few had known him, even in the glory days. Urzi had never been one to harangue his troops with rhetoric. He'd been an inventor, a scholar, an artificer, such as the world had not seen since the Thran. All he'd ever wanted was a study in peace. He'd had that peace once, near the beginning, and lost it. He'd lost everything to the man the abomination his brother had become. 
a handful of Urza students had survived the cataclysm. They denounced their master, and Urza hadn't troubled them with a visit. Urza's wife's, Kayla, being Krug, had survived too. She now dwelt in austere solitude with her grandson, writing an epic they called the Antiquity Wars. Urza hadn't visited her either. Kayla alone might have recognized him, and he had no words for her. As for her grandson, Jarsal, black-haired, stocky, charming, animal, and quick-witted, Urza had glimpsed the young man just once, and that had been one time too many. His descent continued. Urza had not wanted to return to this place when the war had, in a very real sense, begun nearly 50 years earlier. He wasn't ashamed of what he'd done to end the war. Filling the boar-shaped Silex with his memories had been an act of desperation. The Silex itself had been a sudden and suspected gift, and until that day, he neither studied nor practiced sorcery. He hadn't known what using the Silex would do, but the war had had to be stopped. The thing his brother had become had to be stopped, else Teresier's fate would have been much worse. Much worse. No, Urza would not apologize, but he was not pleased by his own survival. Urza should have died when the cyclists emptied. He suspected that he had died, but the power stones over which he and his brother had contended had preserved him. When Urza had awakened, the two Thran jewels had become his eyes. All Thran devices had been powered by such faucet stones, but his might stone and Misha's weak stone had been as different from ordinary power stones as a candle to the sun. Once we joined with Urza's skull, the Thran Jones had restored him to his prime. He had no need for food or rest, though he continued to sleep, because a man needed dreams even more than he needed rest. And his new eyes gave him vision that reached around dark corners into countless other worlds. Urza believed that in time, the bottom realms of Teresier would recover, even thrive. But he had never wished to watch that excruciatingly slow process. So he'd walk away. For five years after the Silex endangered cataclysm, Urza had explored the, the round-the-corner worlds his faceted eyes revealed. In one such world, he'd met another traveler, a woman named Mushuviel, who had confirmed what he'd already guessed. He'd lost his mortality the day he destroyed Misha. The blast had slain him, and the power stones had brought him back to life, because he was, had always been, a planeswalker, like Meshuviel herself. Meshuviel explained to Urza that the worlds he visited were merely a handful of the infinite planes of the multiverse, any of which could be explored and exploded by an immortal planeswalker. She taught Urza to change his shape at will, and comprehend thought without the inconvenience of language or translation. But even among planeswalkers, Urza was unique. For all her knowledge, Mashuviel couldn't see the multiverse as Urza saw it. Her eyes were an ordinary brown, and she never heard of the Thran. Mashuviel could tell Urza nothing about his eyes, except that she feared them, and feared them so much that she tried to snag him in a time pit. When that failed, she fled the plane where they'd be living. Urza had thought about pursuing Mushuviel, 
more from curiosity than from vengeance. But she, the plane she called Dominaria, the plane where he'd been born, the plane he'd nearly destroyed, kept his claws in his mind. Five years after the cataclysm, Dominaria had pulled him home. Urza's descent ended on a wind-eroded plateau. Clouds thickened, turned gray. Cold wind, sharp with ice and dust, plastered long strands of ash-blonde hair across Urza's eyes. Winter had come earlier than Urza had expected, another unwelcome gift from the Silex. A few more days and the glyphs would have buried into spring. Four millennia ago, the, tr the Thran had transformed the plateau into a fortress, an isolated stronghold where they'd make their proclamations. But no one had cracked that ignamic code, and no one cracked it that afternoon. Urza's eyes gave him insight into their maker's language. Oh, sorry, Urza's jeweled eyes gave him no insight into their maker's language. Fifty years ago, in his natural youth, Urza and his brother had named the great Catholic within the plateau Corleos, and Corleos it remained. Corleos had been in ruins then. Now the ruins were themselves ruined, but not merely by the cyclics. The brothers and the roar had war had wrought this damage, plundering the whole plateau for Thran secrets, Thran power stones. In truth, Urza had expected worse. Mercia had held this part of Tessier for most of the war, and it pleased Urza to believe that his brother's allies had more destruct had been more destructive than his own allies. In a dusty corner of his heart, Urza knew that he had been able to ravage Corleos, even the shadows would have been stripped from the stones. But Misha's minions had piled their rubber nearby, almost reverently. Their shredded tents still flapped in the rising wind. Looking closer, Urza realized they left suddenly and without their belongings, summoned perhaps to Argoth, as Urza had summoned his followers for that final battle five years earlier. Urza paused on the careful excavated path. He closed his eyes and shuddered as memories flooded his mind. He and Misha had fought from the beginning in a sunlit Argive nursery. How could they not, when he was the eldest by less than a year? Misha was the brother everyone liked better. Yes, they'd been inseparable. So keenly aware of their differences that they'd come to rely on the other's strength. Urza never learned uh, the arts of friendship or affection because he had Misha between him and the rest of the world. And Misha, what had he given Misha? What had Misha ever truly needed from him? How long, Urza asked Wind in a whisper that was both rage and pain, when did you first turn away from me? Urza reopened his eyes and resumed his trek. He left no footprints in the dust and snow. Nothing distracted him. The desecrated corpse propped against one tetpore wasn't worth a second glance. Despite the metal place rusting on its brow or the brass pincers replacing its left arm, Urza had seen what his brother had become. It wasn't surprising him that Misha's disciples were similarly grotesque. His faceted face peered into darkness, seeing nothing. Now that was a surprise and a disappointment. Urza had expected insight, the way the child expects a present on New Year's morning. Disappoint Mishra, and you have gotten a summer tantrum, loud, violent, and quickly passed. Disappoint Urza, and Urza got cold and quiet, like ice, 
until he thawed through the problem. After 4,000 years, had they plundered the last Thran power stone, exposed the last artifact? Was there nothing for his eyes to see? A dull blue glint caught Urza's attention. He rumped a palm-sized chunk of metal free from the rocks and rubble. Immediately it moved in his hand, clawing back on itself. It was Thran, of course. An artificer of Urza's skill did not need jeweled eyes to recognize that ancient craftsmanship. Only the Thran had known how to forge a sort of sentience between motes of metal. But Urza saw the blue-gray metal more clearly than ever before. With time, the right tools, the right reagents, and a bit of luck, he might be able to discover its secrets. Then, acting without deliberate thought, as he rarely did, Urza drove his right thumbnail into the harder-than-steel surface. He thought of a groove, a very special groove that matched his nail. When he lifted his thumb, the groove was in the metal, and remained to slowly count to ten. I see it. Yes, I see it. So simple, once it can be seen. Urza thought of Mishra, spoke to Mishra, no one else. Not even his master student, Thanos, could have grasped the shifting symmetries. His thoughts had imposed on the ancient metal. As if it had been your thumb, Ursa confided to the wind, impulse like friendship had been Mishra's gift. Ursa had almost seen him standing there, brash and brilliant, and not a day over eighteen. An ice crystal died in Ursa's lashes. He blinked and saw Mishra's face, slashed and tattered, hanging by flesh threads and cogs of a glistening engine. Phyrexia, he swore, and hurried the shard into the storm. It bounced twice, ringing like a bell, and vanished. Phyrexia. He'd learned that word five years ago, the very last day of the cataclysm, when Tanus had brought him the Cyclux. Tanus had gotten the bowl from Ashnod, and for that reason alone, Urza would have cast it aside. But he'd fought Misha once already that fateful day. For the first time, Urza had poured himself into the stone, the might stone, and if his brother had been a man, his brother would have died. But Misha had no longer been a man. He hadn't died. And Ursa needed whatever help fate offered. In those chaotic moments, as their masked war engines turned on one another, there'd be no time to ask questions or consider implications. Urza believed Misha had transformed himself into a living artifact, and that abominable act had justified the cyclics. It was after, when there was no one left to ask, that the questions had surfaced. Thanos had mentioned a demon, a creature from Phyrexia that had ambushed him in Ashnod. Never mind the circumstances that had brought Urza's only friend and his brother's treacherous lieutenant together on the Argoth battlefield. Thanos and Ashnod had been lovers once, and love. Other than an absolute devotion to inquiry or knowledge, meant very little to Urza. Ask instead, what was the Phyrexian doing in Argoth? Why had it usurped all the artifacts, his and Mishra's? Then ask a final question. What he or Misha to do with Phyrexia, that its demon had become their common enemy. Some exotic force, some Phyrexian force, had conspired against them, wandering utterly alone across the re ruins of Theresier. There had seemed no other explanation. In the end, in the force of Argoth, 
only the cyclists had prevented a, a Phyrexian victory. Within a year of the Cataclysm, Urza had tracked the cyclics back through Asnod's hand to a woman named Loren, whom he'd met in his youth. Although Loren had studied the Thran with him and Misha under the tutelage of Tokathia, she turned away from Artiface and became a scholar in the ivory towers of Teresia City, a witness of the land-based power the cyclists had unleashed. The residents of Teresia City had sacrificed half their number to keep the bowl out of Mishra's hands. Half hadn't been enough. Loran had lost the cyclists and the use of her right arm to Ashnod's infamous inquiries. But the rest of her had survived. Urza had approached Loran warily, disguised as a woman who had lost her husband and both her sons in what he'd bitterly described as the brother's cursed folly. Loran was a competent sage and a better person than Urza hoped to be. But she was no match for his jeweled eyes. As she heated water on a charcoal brazier, he'd stolen her memories. The cyclix, of course, was gone, consumed by the force it had released, and Lauren's memory of it was imperfect. That was Ashenod's handiwork. The torturer had taken no chances with her many victims. Loran recalled a copper bowl incised with thranculates. Urza had forgotten until he saw him again in Lauren's memory. Some of the glyphs were sharp enough that he recognized them if he saw them again, but most were blurred. He could have sharpened those memories. His eyes had that power. But Urza knew better than to make the suggestion. Lauren would sooner die than help him. So they drank tea, watched the brilliant sunset, then went their separate ways. Urza had learned enough. The Thran... The vanished race who inspired every artifact had made the cyclists, and the cyclics had saved the Maria from the Phyrexians. Although mysteries remained, there was symmetry, and Urza had hoped that symmetry would be enough to halt his dreams. He'd resumed his planes walking. It had taken five years. Urza was nothing, if not a determined, even stubborn man, before he'd admit to himself that his hopes were futile. A year ago, he'd run to Dominaria to Argoth itself, which he'd avoided since the war ended. He'd found the ruined hilltop where he'd unleashed the land's fury and pain. He found Thanos' coffin. Thanos had spent five years stealed, sealed in stasis within the coffin. For him, it was as if the war hadn't ended and a classicism hadn't happened. The crisp images of the services of Thanos' awakened mind had been battle for chaos. Ashnod's lured hair and a demon from Flexia. If this thing is here, Thanos had recalled his erstwhile lover's one-time torturer's words. Asnod's statement had applied at least to Thanos, and from him to Urza, that she'd recognized the demon, a man-tall construction of strutted metal and writhing segmented wires. Urza recognized it too, or parts of it. He'd seen similar wires uncoiled from his brother's flinched body, attaching Misa to the dragon engine. This one is mine. More of Ashnod's sultry words lying fresh in Thanos' mind. Urza's only friend had wanted to argue with Ashad, to die beside her. She wouldn't grant him that dubious honor. Instead, she'd given him the cyclics. Thanos' memories had clouded quickly as he absorbed the vastly changing landscape. While Thanos had sorted his thoughts, Urza had looked westward to the battlefield, 
now replaced by ocean. Ashnod, as treacherous as she had been beautiful, had betrayed everyone who fell into her power. Thanos's back still bore the scars. Mishra had judged her so unreliably that he banished her, only led her back for that last battle. Or had he? Had Mishra known Ashnod carried the cyclics? Had the traitor himself been betrayed? Which was the puppeteer, and which the master? Why had the demon stalked Ashnod across the battlefield? What was her connection to Phyrexia? Urza had wrestled with such questions until Thanos had asked his own. Your brother? Dead, Urza replied, as his questions conversed on a single actor, long before I found him. The words had satisfied Thanos, who began at once to talk of other things, of rebuilding the land and restoring its vitality. Thanos, dear friend Thanos, had always been quite an optimist. Urza left him standing by the coffin, certain that they never meet again. For Urza, the realization that he had slain Mercia within the cyclics had given him a sense of peace that had lasted for about a month until a new stranger wave of guilt had engulfed it. He was the elder brother, charged from birth with the younger sibling's care. He'd failed. When Mishra had needed an older brother's help, that older brother had been elsewhere. He'd failed Mishra and all of Dominaria. His brother had died alone, betrayed by Ashmog, traffored by Phyrexian demon into a hideous amalgamation of flesh and artifice. Urza had returned to Argoth, and Tarnoth, Thanos as the snows, had begun almost one year ago. He denied himself sleep or shelter, kneeling in the snow, waiting for Misha or death. It hadn't mattered which. Meshuviel had been correct. Urza had transcended death, and he'd found, to his enduring dismay, that he lacked the will for suicide. A late spring had freed him from his icy prison. He stood up, no weaker than he'd be when he knelt down. The left side of his face had been raw with bitter tears, where bitter tears had leaked from the weak stone, but it had healed quickly, within a few moments. He'd walked away with no marks from his season-long penis. In his youth, when his wife's realm of Yotia had sparkled in the sun, a man named Rusko had told Ursa that a man had many souls throughout his life, and that death after death, each soul was judged according to its deeds. Urza had outlived his souls. The cyclics had blasted him out of the judgment's hands. No peasants would ever dull the ache of failure. All that remained was vengeance. Urza had spent the spring and summer ensuring himself that Ashnod had not survived. He skipped through the plains, returning after each unreal stride to Dominaria, in search of a woman who was too proud to change her periods or her ways. When Fall had arrived without a trace of her, Urza had turned his attention to Kolois, where he and Misha had come to manhood, pursuing relics of the Thran. His immortal memory, he discovered, was valuable. Planes walking could easily take him to a place he didn't quite remember. In the end, searching for places that had fallen from memory, he'd been reduced to surveying the vast tracts of bearing land from the air, as he and his brother had surveyed them in their youth. He had given his eyes and immortality to back just one of those days 
he and Misha had spent in Tokasia's camp. Slady wind shut up his sleeves. Urza wasn't immune to the discomforts of cold, merely to their effects. He thought of a felded cloak. He spread downwards from his shoulders, thickening as he added, as he added a fur lining, then gloves, fleece-lined boots, and a soft brim hat that didn't move in the wind. He'd continued along the path Misa's workers had left. As before, and despite his new boots, Urza left no footprints. Which eats, with each stride, pain ratcheted through his skull. This close to the place where they joined by for millennia, his jeweled eyes recalled another purpose. Hoping to dull the pain, Urza turned his back to the cavern. His throbbing eyes saw the snow-etched ruins as shadows painted on the gauzy cloth. Nothing like the two real visions he'd suffered the day he'd acquired the Might Stone. Then the shadows expanded and began to move. They were different from his earlier visions, but not entirely. Where before he had watched white-robed men constructing black metal spiders, now he saw a battlefield swarming with artifacts. Another Argoth, but without the demonic disorder. At first, Urza couldn't distinguish the two forces. As an observer, might not have been able to distinguish his army from Mishra's. But as he looked, the lines of battle became clear. One side had its back against the caravan and was fighting for the freedom of the plains beyond the hollow plateau. The other formed an arc as it moved from the narrow defile. That was the only way to those plains, meaning to crush its enemy against the cliffs. Blinding flashes and plumes of dark smokes erupted everywhere, testaments to the desperation with which both sides fought. Urza strained his eyes. One force had to be the Thran. But which? And which power opposed them? During the moments that Urza pondered, the Defile Force scored a victory. A swarm of their small artifacts stormed the behemoth that anchored the enemy center. It went down in a whirlwind of flames that drove both forces back. The Defile Force regrouped quickly and took a bite from the cavern's force precious ground. A Midgard cadre from the Defile brought rays of white light to bear on the behemoth's smoldering hull. Suit rained and Hulk glowed red. Caught up in the vision, Urga began to count. One, two. The Hulk flanks, the Hulk's flanks burst, and all too familiar segmented wires on coal. Tipped with size, the wires slashed through the defiled cadre, winning it by half, but not too late. The Thran Palace Stones completed the destruction of the Frexian behemoth. Millennia after the battle's dust had settled, Urza clenched his jaw together in a gloomy, satisfied smile. Ebb and flow were obvious. Now that he'd identified the Thran and their goal, to drive the Frexians into the cave, where presumably they'd be annihilated. It was as the Argoth battle between him and Misha had been, a final battle. Retreat was not an option for the Frexians and the Thran had offered no quarter. Urza lost interest in his own time, as the shadow war continued. The Phyrexians assembled behind their last behemoth, charged the Thran line on its right flank, and nearly broke through. But the Thran held nothing back, as ants might swarm a fallen bit of fruit. They converged upon the Phyrexian bulge. Again, it became impossible to distinguish one force from the other. 
or is it counted to 110, by which time there is no movement within the shadows. When he reached 112, the shadows brightened to desert noon brilliance. Reflexively, Urza shielded his eyes. When he lowered his head, there was only snow. The pain in his skull is gone. He entered the cabin through sobering by which sobering by what he had seen. His eyes recorded the foul battle between the Thran and the Phyrexians. It seemed reasonable to assume that recording the Phyrexians' defeat was part of their function. From that assumption, it was easy to conclude that the Thran had intended the recordings known as a warning to all those that came after. Urza had had a vision when he first touched what had become his mightstone. He recalled as he entered the cave, despite his best efforts. The images were dreamlike, yet they strengthened his newborn conviction. The Thran had vanished because they'd sacrificed themselves to defeat the Phyrexians. Within the ca cavern, Urzik laughed up the rough ceiling. We didn't know, he explained to any lingering Thran ghosts. We didn't know your language. We didn't guess what we couldn't understand. He knew now. The artifact in which they fell in the single stone, the artifact that he and Mishra had destroyed utterly, had been a the Thran legacy to Darnaria, and a means through which they'd walked, locked their enemy out of Darnaria. We didn't know. When the stone had split into its opposing parts, the lock had been sprung, and the Frexians had returned. The enemy had no better to approach him, the bearer of the might stone. But they had... They must have suborned, corrupted, and destroyed Mishra, who only had the weak stone for protection. The stones were, after all, truly equal. Were, sorry, the stones were not, after all, truly equal. Might was naturally dominant over weakness, as Urza, the elder brother, should have been dominant over the younger. But blinded by an elder brother's prejudice and admitted jealousy, Urza had done nothing. No, he'd done worse than nothing. He blamed Misha, had gone to war against Misha, and undone the Thran sacrifice. Guilt was a throbbing presence within Urza's skull. He closed his eyes and clapped his hand over his ears. But that only made everything worse. Why hadn't he and Misha talked? Through their childhood and youth, he and Misha had fought constantly and bitterly, before repairing the damage with conversation. Then after the stone had entered their lives, they hadn't even tried. Then insight and memory came to Urza. There had been one time, about 45 years ago, in what could be called the war's morning hours. They'd come together on the banks of the river Kor, where it tumbled out of the Kahir Mountains. The Jotun warlord, his, fa his wife's father, had come to Parway with the Quadir of the Falaji. Urza hadn't seen or heard from his brother in years. He'd believed that Misha was dead, and he'd stunned to see him advising the Quadir. He, Urza, gods and, go gods and ghosts take notes, had suggested that they should talk, and Misha had agreed. As Urza recalled the conversation, Misha had been reluctant, that was his brother's style. Petulant and sulky, whenever his confidence was shaky, as surely as would have been with the weak stones burning slung around his neck, and the Phyrexians eating at his conscience. Surely Misha would have confessed everything if the warlord hadn't taken it into his head to assassinate the Quadir 
as the parley began. Urze recalled the carnage, the look on Misha's face. Back in Korlos, in the first snows of the fifth winter, after the catechism, Urza staggered and eased himself to the ground. For a few moments, the guilt was gone, replaced by a cold fury that marched across time to the warlord's neck. It was your fault. It's your fault. But the warlord shrugged him away. He was your brother, not mine. If the Frexen had not taken Misha's soul before that day on the banks of the core, they had surely no difficulty afterwards. The blame then was Urza's, and there was nothing he could do to ease his conscience, except, as always, inventions against the Phyrexians. For once, Urza was in the right place. Koilos was where the Thran had stopped the Phyrexians once, and where his own ignorance had given the enemy a second chance. If there was a way to Phyrexia, it was somewhere within Koilos. Urza left tracks in the dust as he searched for a sign. The sun had set. Koilos was too dark. Urza's eyes made their own light, revealing a pass, less dusty than any other, that led deep into the cavern's heart. He found a chamber ringed with burnt-out power stones. Two sooty lines were etched on the sand floor, marks that had been Thran glyphs showed faintly between the lines. Urza used his eyes to scour the spot, but the glyphs, if glyphs they were, remained illegible. He cursed and knelt between the lines. There was the place, it had been very place, where the Phyrexians had entered Dominaria. There could be no doubt. Looking straight ahead, past the lines and the exhausted power stones, there is a crystal reliquary, atop a waist-high pyramid. The reliquary was broken and empty, but the pyramid presented an exquisitely painted scene to Urza's glowing eyes. The demon had seen he had seen in Tanos' memory. Circling the pyramid, Urza saw two other demonic portraits, a picture of the chamber itself with a blast dick rising between etched lines. He tore the chamber apart, looking for the disc, either its substance or the switch that awakened it, and not for the first time in his life, Urza failed. When Urza walked among the multiple planes of the multiverse, he began his journey wherever he happened to be, and ended it with an act of will or memory. He realized that the Frexians had used another way, but it lay beyond his comprehension, as did the plane from which they sprung. The multiverse was vast beyond measure, and filled with uncountable planes. With no trail or memory to guide him, Urza was a sailor on a becalm scene beneath a clouded sky. He had no notion of which way to turn. I am immortal. I'll water the plains until I find their home. How long and hard the journey. I will destroy them as they destroyed my brother. And that is the end of chapter one. Thank you for listening.